Exodus chapter 3, we're going we're to start something uh, new tonight for the month of, months of September and October. Uh, we're just going to pull some random stories out of the Old Testament and talk about them. Um, I love the Old Testament. I love the New Testament, yes. The Old Testament, though, for me, is there's so much meat there, you know, and I think part of it is because, you know, it's, it's a storyline, you know, that you're, that you're reading and stuff, and there's just, I can identify so much with the, the, some of the characters there because they really just messed up a lot, you know, made some pretty bonehead decisions, and, and hey, me, um, awesome. And so uh, for the next several uh, weeks, we're just going to kind of just hop around the Old Testament, pick some stories out. And uh, probably things that if you grew up in church, especially if you grew up in Baptist church, probably some good like old third grade Sunday school, VBS, get out the felt board kind of stuff, like probably some of those kind of stories. And so um, tonight we're going to talk about Moses. And um, you, may, uh, you may know uh, a lot about Moses because of Charlton Heston movies or The Prince of Egypt or, you know, whatever. Um, Moses uh, has a, a really cool life story. Um, basically, he, you know, he was born uh, into the family of the Hebrews, uh, to this Hebrew family, and they were uh, slaves in Egypt. And there was a problem because they were basically, uh, they were about to, they're starting to outnumber the Egyptians. And when uh, the slaves outnumber the people who are, you know, ruling over them, that's not a good thing. And the Pharaoh started to get worried that there's going to be so many of them that they were going to basically pair up with their enemies and then overwhelm the Egyptians and stuff like that. So he made this rule. He said, uh, he said, we have to do some sort of population control. So every boy that is born, you kill him, throw him in the river, uh, drown him. But if it's a girl, it's fine, let her live, whatever. So um, Moses' mom and all the other moms were, were pretty quick on their feet, and uh, she managed to uh, give birth to him and then put him in this basket and send him down the river uh, and let him float and just trust that God was going to take care of him. Uh, the Pharaoh's daughter, ironically, finds him in this basket and gets all excited. And I guess maybe she wasn't that close to her dad because she was just like, hey, look, I have a kid. You know, He's like, oh, okay. Uh, and so she has this, this baby, and um, they said, let's, let's get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby and, and, until he gets old enough to come and live in the Pharaoh's house. Um, and God being the uh, puppet master that he is, uh, Moses' actual mom was the one that they went and got to come and raise him. And so uh, she um, comes in and raises him and stuff, and so, but eventually has to give him back to Pharaoh's daughter. So he grows up, um, his lineage is Hebrew, but he grows up in Pharaoh's household as one of the part of the royal family or whatever. He's out one day, sees um, some Egyptians beating up a Hebrew guy. Look, he looks around, nobody's looking. He kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. And uh, then a couple of days later, he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other. And he's like, dude, why are y'all fighting with each other? You're, you're brothers. Like, why would you do that? And they said, oh, what are you going to do? Kill us like you did that Egyptian? And he kind of flipped out and was like, oh, man, I'm busted. So he starts running. Pharaoh finds out. Pharaoh tries to kill him. One thing leads to another. He finds himself as a shepherd um, taking care of all these sheep. All right, kind of comes full circle, uh, being born into uh, not the greatest situation, goes all the way th- through the royal household, and now is running for his life and has found himself out tending sheep um, as, once again, a Hebrew. And so this is where, uh, where we find him in Exodus chapter 3. He has an, an encounter, um, a face-to-face encounter with, with God. And like, have you ever, you ever, like, had an encounter with, like, a celebrity, you know, or, like, someone that you, 
um, have like seen on TV or whatever, and like somehow you bump into them in an airport or like whatever. Um, I remember when we were working after after Katrina, we were working at the shelter at Southern University, and we're out there and we're helping some people, or whatever. And all this news crew comes in, and it's like Peyton Manning and Eli Manning are coming in with their news crew to come in and meet everybody and stuff. And they're coming like our way, and everybody's all pumped up, you know, whatever. And so it's and they're huge. Like I don't know why I didn't think that they would be huge, but they're like just big guys, you know. So they walk by, and there's just something about it. You're like, whoa, that's Peyton Manning, you know. Not so much about Eli, but I was like, that's Peyton Manning, you know. Um, he went to Ole Miss, so you know. Um, and so you know, like that was really cool. And we're at the shelter one day, and uh, Montel Williams comes in. You know, Montel Williams, ball-headed guy, and. Uh, if I recall correctly, he walks in and Jonathan Wilmore goes, Montel Jordan! <laughs> Loud as can be. And he was just like, what's up? And so that was pretty crazy. Montel Williams, not Montel Jordan, uh, went by. We were like, oh, that's pretty cool. And so he had his news crew, whatever. And um, Al Sharpton showed up one day with all this stuff to give away. And then when he found out there wasn't a camera crew, he left and didn't give his stuff away. I've always just wanted to drop that story in so people could find out that because... We were just like, are you serious? Like, whatever. But here we are in the presence of these people, and you're like, oh, my goodness. Um, I got to go to New York one time and watch, I was at the taping of Letterman, you know, and he's like 15 feet away, and you're like, that's David Letterman. But that wasn't the highlight, because the musical guest was Lenny Kravitz. And I was so excited when they said it was Lenny Kravitz. And he, Lenny Kravitz comes out, and he's wearing, it looks like he went to the hotel and was like, I like that bedspread. I think I'm going to wrap it around myself and wear it. And he's just wrapped up in this bedspread or whatever, and his band's out there, and they're like, they rock out, whatever. And then in the commercial break, Letterman's band played Are You Gonna Go My Way? And, of course, Lenny, like, rocks out with him. And I'm just sitting there just completely just paralyzed with just awe, you know. I'm like, this, it doesn't get any better than this. Um, except for the fact I was in an elevator one time with uh, Rip Taylor. You know, the guy throws the glitter or whatever. He's a comedian, mustache, whatever. That was pretty awesome, too. Um, but I'll tell you why I, I dropped that in there because when you're in the presence of someone you've always heard about it's this weird connection that comes you know like I really think that if I ever met Lenny Kravitz again I would just be like like we're friends or something you know dude I was at Letterman that time when you wore that bedspread dude if I ever met Rip Taylor, like, I was in the elevator one time, and the whole time I was thinking, please just throw some glitter on me. Please, some confetti, anything, throw something on me. There's this weird connection when people you've always heard about, all of a sudden you're in their presence. There's just some sort of reality that just sinks in. And that's kind of where, where Moses is, you know, like he's grown up and he knows about the God of, of the Hebrews, you know, and all his ancestors, and, and like he, he's heard so much, and... What we're about to see is his very, very special, like, face-to-face encounter with the one true holy God. Um, and so here he is, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. 
When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I've heard this story my whole life, you know. It's just one of those stories where you're, like, you just kind of wish you had been a bird on a branch nearby, you know, to watch this. And even in those movies, you know, in the Ten Commandments, when they depict it, I'm still, like, even though the, you know, the cinematography is, like, very much, you know, for that time, it's just not, the special effects aren't that impressive, still just the, the idea that, um, not so much that there's this, like, fireball that starts talking to you, I'm sure that's kind of freaky, but just the idea of, of that encounter, you know, with this God that you have been raised to believe in and you've heard all these stories about and is full of, of all this awesomeness and this power and this might to come face to face. And so there's two things tonight I want us to walk away with, just two very simple points that I think God wants us to kind of sit on tonight. Here's, here, here's the first one. Um, the presence of God changes everything. It's really basic. The presence of God changes everything. Here's, here's Moses. He's out just doing what he does. He brings his sheep to this mountain, and he's tending them, and he looks over, and he sees, you know, this shrub that should be burning up. And I'm sure at first he's like, that's random. There's a fire in the middle of nowhere. But what catches his eye is the fact it's not being consumed so he just walks over and starts talking to him. And God says, stay where you are and take your shoes off. Because this ground, this ground is holy. Um, it wasn't like this plot of ground that you would like put ropes around and have a little marker there for tourists to read. Like, this is the holy ground. This ground is holy. Isn't, it wasn't the ground. It was... It was the presence of God. Because the presence of God changes, literally changes everything. Um, and so what he was d- doing is, is he was requiring this recognition on the part of Moses. That because, because I am here, everything is different. Everything is, has changed. This is, everything is better. Just because I'm here. And that's a simple thought, but it's, it's really kind of big when, you, when, we, when we think about it. Here's this, here's this shrub that normally, I mean, we've all been around burn piles before or bonfires or whatever. I mean, you put something, you, even, you get this fire going, I mean, even if something is alive and it's still got some water in it and stuff, I mean, like a fire, if it's long enough and it's stoked, you know, and it's like hot enough, it's going to consume it. I mean, it doesn't have to be dry and dying, you know. It's going to eat it up. And so under normal circumstances, a fire would, would destroy this bush. And that kind of intrigued me. So I started reading, like going to read all these commentaries by all these old, like these people live like 200, 300 years ago, you know, and 
and have written all these books, all these smart guys that know all the original languages and all this kind of stuff. There's this real consistent idea that was passed down all, all throughout all these commentaries. And they were saying that the, the bush that was on fire but not being consumed represented at, at that moment when Moses was standing there the condition of, of Israel. Israel is the, they're, they're the shrub. And under normal conditions... You know, that oppression and that slavery and like all that kind of stuff, they should be being completely destroyed by, by their circumstances, you know, by the conditions that were, were there in Egypt. And yet, just like this bush, they were, they were not being touched at all. There was no destruction going on in spite of what naturally would have brought some pretty serious, you know, destruction to them. And I kind of thought about that and I was like, that's... Yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, I doubt Moses really connected that right there in that moment. And they kind of go on to say, you know, but that's also representative of the, the rest of the history of, of Israel, that they went through all these trials and all this stuff, all these ups and downs as a nation, and yet, like, they still made it. You know, there's no way that they should have survived as a people. They just shouldn't have. Yet in the midst of all these wars and all these, these nations, these warriors coming in to fight these, these slaves with no training and no weapons and stuff, they still, they still like thrive. They're untouched when they should have been destroyed. You carry that into the New Testament. The same thing with Jesus. I mean, Jesus, you know, in the, in the midst of him even being crucified and beaten and all this kind of stuff, whatever, like he's still, like the circumstances, he should have been destroyed, but he wasn't. New Testament church, persecution, um, all these, this, all this bad stuff during the first century and the second century—it was just really, just bad. The church should have never, ever survived. Christianity should have never made it. But yet, just like that bush, all these, despite the circumstances, they were, they were fine. And you carry that into your life, into my life, you know. Then, in spite of of sin, in spite of all our struggles and our just stupidity. And the pressures of the world and the devil and all this kind of stuff, despite all these things going on that should be just completely destroying us, as Christians, we're just like that, that shrub that's just strong. And, and, and here's why. Because the presence of God changes everything. Because God was in the midst of the Israelites, they were not destroyed. They continued to grow to the point where their oppressors had to come up with a plan to figure out how to stifle them. He was in their midst in the desert when they were wandering around. He was in their midst as they became this nation. He was in the midst when they were crucifying Jesus. He was in the midst during the, during the book of Acts and all that persecution. He's been in the midst all throughout history, all the way to right here in this gym tonight. He is in our midst. And the presence of God changes everything. You th- think about your life. You think about, think about where, where you are and the, the great things about your life and the difficult things about your life. And think about those difficult times, you know. I'm just uh, amazed that, that there are, are, are people who have been completely just addicted and controlled by, by substances, by drugs, by alcohol, by whatever. And those things should completely just tear their lives apart. But because Christ is in the center of it, they make it, you know? You got marriages that are, that are plagued by infidelity and mistrust and bad financial decisions and all these things that you would think like, oh, that's the end of that marriage. It's never going to make it. But when God is in the midst, everything is different. 
look at those struggles with sin that we just can't seem to, to, to break free from, and, and you just get to the point where you're just tired of, of fighting it, you're tired of praying it away, you're tired of whatever, and it should be making a wreck out of your life. And yet you see that grace and that faithfulness of God and that enduring love that we sing about, and it's because the presence of God changes everything for you and for me. So we have to look at that and we have to say, wow, what, what security, you know, what protection, what, what grace, what mercy, just how, how amazing is our, con- our condition in Christ? And when you look at your own life and you can, we could probably all list all these things that should have completely consumed us and destroyed us and should have us living at the, the, the absolute low point of our lives and that, yet those things have been rendered powerless because of Christ is because God is present in your life. And he's present in my life. Let me read this to you. You don't have to turn. 2 Corinthians says this. It says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, isn't that the Christian life? I mean, isn't that us? And all this stuff around us, it should be just ripping us to shreds, and yet the presence of God has got us protected, and that righteousness of Christ is applied to us. And when God looks at this room tonight, he sees a bunch of saints that he has redeemed, that he loves, and that he is just enthralled by the singing and the praying and the attention that we pay to him. Because the presence of God changes everything. Guys, we've got to apply that. We've got we to bring that into our lives, and we have to look around and, and apply that to our difficulties and our circumstances and the struggles and the things that we just hate about our lives and we wish we could just take like a magic pill and it would all go away. We have to apply that, and we have to say, in the midst of, of all these kind of things, I am that shrub. I am that shrub. And God is in our midst, and God lives in me. The Bible says that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So here Moses is standing there, and, and God says, this is, this is holy ground. And on this side of the cross, you know what that means? There's not this place that we go to. We don't have this temple that we enter into that is holy. The holiness is here. The holiness is here. I don't know if you're glad you don't have to like go to a certain place to meet with the Lord anymore. How cool is that? The presence of God changes everything. So God tells him, um, keep your distance. And he says, take off your shoes. Now, a lot of commentaries will talk about how taking off your shoes during that time is kind of like people taking off their hats you know, currently, you know, it's a, it's a respect thing. It's a, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, and I, I just don't like that that much, you know, because I don't think I was like, you need to respect my presence. I think the presence of God, like you respect it <laughs> automatically. I don't think God's like, I need a little more respect. I don't know. That's just something that didn't really, didn't really gel with me. So I started reading some more and, and really it, it makes a, a whole lot of sense. All right. Moses is a shepherd. I don't know if you've ever been around sheep. But sheep eat a lot. And animals that eat a lot 
do other stuff a lot too. The old digestive process just it has a way of, of just happening. All right? So he's around sheep all day and he's outside. So he's got all kind of stuff to deal with. He's got some foot issues. Dirt, sand, rocks, etc. <laughs> yada yada yada, all right? So professionally, he's his shoes are soiled, you know. And so the laying aside of those shoes really it, it kind of says something that's kind of cool, you know. It's in the presence of God that in, in His presence that where everything is different, everything is changed. There's some things we don't bring into His presence. He's really saying, don't bring that pollution in here. And it is a respect thing, and I, I agree with that. But I think there's just some practical stuff too, you know. If I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, all right, Jesus lives in me, that kind of changes uh, my approach to sin. You know, I mean, how often do we stop to think about, you know, like, wow, like, by doing this, I'm basically, like, I'm bringing pollution into holiness. You know, I'm disrespecting the holiness and the purity of God. See, again, the presence of God changes everything including our perspective on sin, you know, on stuff that's destroying us and killing us, you know, whatever. And here's his presence saving us from all this kind of stuff. And yet a lot of times we just continue to, to try and bring those, those dirty, polluted sandals into his presence. And his love endures through that, and his grace covers that and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think there's a, just a wake-up call that's got to come to us at some point, you know. I think we have to realize, like, wow, I am... I'm a a vessel of God's reputation and God's spirit, and why do I continue to attach myself to things that are contaminated? I think God really is kind of at a point with a lot of us where he's like, you know, you just need to quit that. Like, you need to realize who you are and what doing that, how that kind of effect that it has. Just take off your sandals because where you're standing is holy. Now, let me tack this on there. And I, I'm fully aware that this might be stretching it a little bit, okay? Um, there are, there are kind of two ways to approach Scripture. One of them is like, what is, what is the text telling us? What is it teaching us? And, and that's the way that, that preachers are supposed to approach things. Is, is not, you know, is where it's like, what was the original intention? What does it have to, to do with us? You're pulling that meaning out of the text. There's another way of reading it that's, that's more devotional. You know, it's more like when you're, when you're spending time with God or whatever, and the things he begins to show you about Scripture that may have nothing to do with historical context or Greek or Hebrew or any of that kind of stuff, but when God uses a verse to encourage you and to build you and to, like, sh you know, show you a sin issue or whatever... Um, there's kind of that approach. For me, when I was reading that, 
this is, is kind of where my mind went about the sandals. Um, and I know that there's, here's a theological issue. I know that dirt cannot be holy. All right, I understand that. So that's why I'm prefacing all that. But if you, if, you, if you think literally, like as a word picture of what's going on, by God telling Moses to take his sandals off, he's basically in, inviting him to have literal contact with holiness. If you, if, if you take it literally, the ground is, is holy, take your sandals off. Let there be nothing between your skin and that dirt. It's that invitation to intimacy and that connection. And I was reading that. It just, it just blessed me, you know, because, like, that's, that's what God's all about. He's like, look, I'm holy, I'm perfect, I'm amazing, and I, I want you to know me intimately. It's that, that connection, you know. I know that's kind of stretching the text a little bit, but I mean, how awesome is that? How true is that in the New Testament life of, of knowing Christ and knowing him intimately and, and that passionate pursuit of him? The presence of God changes everything. Whether it's security, whether it's dealing with our personal insecurities, whether it's sin issues, whether it's just whatever. His presence changes absolutely everything. It's a whole different ballgame because he is involved. And so in your life, the things that are hard, the things that are difficult, the things that you are just battling, because he is in your midst, you're going to be fine doesn't mean it won't be hard. doesn't mean you won't suffer or whatever. Everything is going to be fine. It's a 24-7 reality for us. I love this, this gym. There's a lot of times during the week where I have to walk through it or whatever, and every time I walk in it, I don't look at it as a gym. I mean, this is like, this is our space, you know? It's the most amazing times of my life have happened in this room. But the reality is, same thing when I'm driving in my truck, when I'm at my house, when I'm at Walmart, when I'm cutting my yard. Same thing. Presence of God just as strong and just as available in the everyday things of life as it is when we're here in this corporate time. And his presence changes everything. That's the first point. Second point, very, very simple. The presence of God demands a response. The presence of God demands a response. After God tells him to take his shoes off, he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God just rattles off his, his credentials, you know, this is who I am. And when he starts talking about who he is, is synonymous with saying, and these are the things I've done. I am a legend. All right? I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. And at just hearing that, Moses hides his face. 
See, the presence of God demands a response. And if the presence of God is a 24-7 reality for you and for me, it means we're always responding to him, constantly responding to him. And that's what makes it so weird is because um, our responses can look a whole bunch of different ways. Sometimes our response can be a complete defiance. It can be completely ignoring his guidance when he's like, don't do that. That's not who you are. Why are you doing that? You know, when you know that you shouldn't do something, you just do it, you know, and you know, and the Holy Spirit is just telling you, no, no, no. Sometimes our response is defiance. Sometimes it's, uh, we just feel like we didn't, you know, hear him. I have a dog, her name is Wheezy, and uh, she's awesome, and, um, but, like, she definitely, like, does what she wants to do. And so, like, if I'm trying to get her attention and she's in a playful mood, then I, it's easy. I just say her name. She looks at me. She's all pumped. If she doesn't feel like playing, I'll say Wheezy. And she'll just kind of... She'll literally look around the room like, I'm ignoring you. I'm ignoring you. I think we do that with God all the time, you know? Well, it's not that defiant, like, in your face, I'm going to do this anyway, you know. But it's more like, ah, I'm just going to pretend like I did not hear that. Thank you. Sometimes we respond in, in complete obedience, you know. Sometimes we, we respond and we just accept that correction and that rebuke. You know, there's just so many different ways we respond. But the presence of God demands a response. And if the presence of God is continual all the time, we are constantly responding which means that we are constantly worshiping because that's all worship is. It is just a response to God. And so if it demands a response and that we respond all the time, I mean, that should, that should be a life-changing thing, you know? His presence changes everything, and his presence demands a response. It means our entire lives are completely consumed with being connected with him and with, with responding to him. And, and our lives, again, we go, go back to the fact that everything is just all about him 100% of the time, all the time, every situation, without exception. It's just all about him all the time. And we see at the beginning of the Bible, this is starting to be established, you know. And so Moses has his response, and he hides his face. And you could probably just make a lot of assumptions as to why he did that. I like the fact that he had the freedom, he felt the freedom to do that, you know. When we come into, you know, this, this place, we have this corporate, you know, deal. Um, I've been in too many situations where, uh, you know, our responses corporately in worship were like completely like handed down, you know. It's like, you know, everybody do this, everybody respond this way, everybody whatever. I'm not talking about just like some general leading and prompting, but I mean, like I've been in situations where it's like, if you don't have your hands up, then you're ashamed of Jesus, you know. It's like, ah, whoa. But you know, we always want... 
there to be freedom in this place to respond however you want. Uh, I've talked many times about how I, you know, my two grandmothers are like extremes of the like Christian uh, worship response, you know, tendencies. Um, I've got one that was like uh, in a charismatic church. I got one that was in a like hardcore Southern Baptist her whole life kind of situation. And so growing up, going to church with with charismatic grandma was like eye opening, you know. And going to church with Southern Baptist Grandma was, was you know, uh, more normal for us or whatever. And the thing is, if our responses, like, if we don't have the freedom to respond accordingly, you realize that, that no matter what, like, what's going on, like, God's just concerned about our, our hearts. See, Moses, he hid his face. That was his, his honest response to the Lord. So I got one grandma who's, who's you know, singing um, the old rugged cross and she's teary-eyed and she's pouring her heart out. And I got another grandma that's like doing like cartwheels and, and stuff and that's her response is just, just joy. I mean like God's just all about both of them. And us having the freedom to respond to the Lord the way that, that we feel led, I mean like how, how important is that for the church to protect, you know? For the church to just blanketly say, like, you respond as God leads you to respond. So if you never put your hands up, I mean, that doesn't mean you're not spiritual. I've been in plenty of situations where people have their hands up and they're talking to each other. <laughs> you know? It's that freedom to, re- to respond. But see, God gives us that freedom to respond with defiance or obedience and everywhere in between. But the bottom line is this, the presence of God demands a response. God working in your life, the fact that you are a Christian and he literally lives inside of you, um, you are constantly 24-7 responding to him. For me, I kind of I tend to limit, you know, stuff. You know, I respond to him, um, you know, definitely on Sundays and, and my community group time, like different times, or whatever. But this is supposed to be a lifestyle issue for us. And you read the rest of the story, and God caused Moses to do some crazy stuff, and Moses is really insecure, and he's not really sure he can do it or whatever. But the end of, at the end of all of it, I almost think that Moses realizes, like, I just talked to a shrub that's on fire. You know, I talked to the God of my ancestors who've done all this kind of stuff. There's no, why would I do anything but obey? In the midst of my insecurities and my frustrations and my, uh, you just the general, like, eh, about life, why, why would I do anything but be obedient to him? It's foolish to do anything but say, yes, yes. And I don't know what this has to do with your life. The thing is, believing that God brought us all here tonight for a reason, and like I say all the time, to sing these songs, talk about these verses, and whatever, there's purpose behind all of it. Maybe God just wants to encourage you tonight to know that all your circumstances, you may think that you're being completely consumed, but you're just like this bush in this story. That his presence in your midst is making all the difference. Build your life on that. Respond to that. 
these Old Testament stories, you know, lots of people say, oh, the Old Testament God's so mean, you know, he's so rough and all this kind of stuff. I see a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of love and a whole lot of power and all this kind of stuff in this story. And there's definitely a purpose for us tonight. And so let's pray together, and we're just going to spend a few minutes just kind of letting God do whatever he wants in each of us individually before we go home. Let's pray together.